Ephesians is a phenomenal letter. Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus, uh, those of us that are going on the, the footsteps of Paul trip this coming March, we'll be making a stop in Ephesus and we'll probably read the letter to the Ephesian church while we're there in Ephesus. It's a wonderful book. Some of you may be very familiar with it. Some of you less familiar with it. The outline of the six chapter letter. Now, when Paul wrote it, he didn't write it, you know, in, in chapters. He just wrote a letter to people in Ephesus, but we've, uh, for ease and for understanding, have given it chapter divisions. Chapters one through three talk about how we've been loved fully by God. And chapters four through six talk about how we should live accordingly to the fact that we've been loved fully. How have we been loved fully? Chapters one through three, I mean, we've been chosen. We've been adopted. We've been accepted. We've been redeemed. We've been made alive. We've been brought near. We've been given hope. We've been given peace. And we have been put in a family. All those things, that's all part of the fullness of God is the way treat, how he's treated us with such love and such kindness. And then the response to that, chapters four through six, is that we should live accordingly. We should walk in love. We should bear with one another. We're stable. We're growing. We're new people. We're a new man or a new woman. We're filled with the Spirit and we're strong. And that's just a smattering of what's in those chapters. You see, the danger, the challenge of topical preaching is that we can get to chapters four, five, and six and tell you to be obedient. Remember chapters five, six, the chapter six has the spiritual warfare. Chapter five, that's where we have the marriage verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we can present that as a command to obey. And it would be true. The problem is we hang it on nothing unless we know what the first three chapters tell us. The last three chapters make no sense unless we know the foundation that's been laid in the first three chapters. And this prayer in these verses we're going to read is absolutely central. It is the transition between being loved fully and living accordingly. And it's, I don't know how you feel when you, when, you have to pray out loud sometimes. You ever been in a group where like there's an expectation that you're going to pray out loud? How many of you get nervous about praying out loud? Oh, I don't know if I don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, Paul not only prays out loud for the believers in Ephesus, but his prayer is recorded in the word of God. So now we all get to read his prayer. And if you want to write down three words, just three words that kind of outline his prayer for the Ephesians, strength, stability, and fullness. Strength, stability, and fullness. Have you ever felt weak? You ever felt like you were just lacking willpower, lacking discipline, moral discipline, lacking emotional stability? Have you ever asked yourself, how can I, how can I be stronger? How can I be more stable? Have you ever felt unloved, lonely, or empty? Well, then this prayer might mean a lot to you. I mean, if you think about prayer meetings, if you think about the bulk of the prayers that we pray as believers— Largely, they are, well, can we pray for my aunt, you know, Olga in, in California? She's got a club toe and, you know, she needs this or that. We have, you know, a lot of health prayers, a lot of extra, and none of those are wrong necessarily. But I think we neglect oftentimes the gist of the prayers that really get down to the core of what we need in our lives. We spend a lot of time praying in the superficial, but Paul 
is going to go and take us and take the believers in Ephesus a little deeper in prayer. So he begins for this reason, based on all that's come before, based on the fact that God is doing this amazing work in people's lives, and he's bringing Jew and Gentile together in one big family and, and all that goes on with that. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees and continually bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, we just celebrated Christmas. So as we read Paul's prayer, when he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're, we're together in that he's not talking about Joseph, right? We're talking about Mary. He's, Paul is not praying to Joseph. And I, I say that it's for us, if we've been around a little while, maybe that's obvious. But to someone who's a new believer, they might think, well, the father of Jesus, that's Joseph, Mary, just heard the story. So we know and understand that it's not Joseph. So who is he praying to? God the Father. And the Greek word is pater. And then it says, from whom the whole family, and that's the word patria, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Those believers that are already with the Lord and those believers that are still here on earth, we're one family that transcends even locale. Christianity is not a business primarily, not a social group, not a network. And it, and it has aspects of those things, but primarily Christianity is about a family. God presents himself as a father. And it's interesting that uh, the word father and the word family have the same root word. The root word for family is father. So uh, J.B. Phillips said that Paul is praying to the father of all fatherhood. That's how you could represent that. The father of all fatherhood. So this family that we have, this family that Paul's been laying out in the, in the first couple chapters, takes on the nature of God the Father. Isn't that a good thing? That's the nature of our family. Interesting, uh, at men's prayer a couple of weeks ago, uh, a gentleman from our fellowship uh, shared a statistic that 75% of kids end up following the faith, not of their mother, but of their father. I thought that was an interesting statistic. It just makes us fathers, us husbands, be more aware of our children are watching our faith and likely to take their cues from us. But we as people, we take our cues. We have our name. That's what it means to say that this family takes its name from God the Father. It's character. We have the character of our Father in heaven. So this is how Paul starts his prayer. This reason I bow, and who am I bowing to? I'm bowing to the father of our family. And here's why he's praying. Here's what he wants. Here's what he's asking for. In order that, and that's not in there, that's kind of written in the Greek, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. What's Paul praying for? Is Paul praying for the health of the Ephesians, the, the physical health? Is he praying for their wealth, their long life? Does he pray for their happiness? Not Again, not that those things are wrong or bad, necessarily. But what Paul's prayer for them is, what he's asking to be done is, that they would be strengthened. And that's a word that means ruling power. Can mean domination, can be the capacity for action. Uh, the word dunamis, where we get dynamite, that's a word that in the, in the Greek is translated uh, strength. It's not this word, but dunamis, that kind of power lies within and it's not visible. But the word here is an exhibition or an expression of power 
through a form of visible dominion and ruling. This is where we get democracy, rule or power of the people. It's the same Greek word, a ruling uh, power. So this would be in the context, an inner power. Paul's praying for them to have an inner power that would be demonstrated in the life. Where is this power demonstrated? Where is this power existing? Well, you read it there, the inner man. Now, I think that is fascinating. I like that because so much of our focus is on the what? The outer man. Large portions, huge swaths of our culture and society are focused all on the outer man or the outer woman. And Peter would say to women, don't let your adornment be merely outward. Let it be the inner person. So there's this, so we recognize Paul's honest about it, that there's an outward person, there's who people see, and then there's who people don't see. And in our culture, uh, as I've done some studying, and I probably don't even need to tell you this, you can know this by experience, our, the fitness industry in our day is absolutely exploding. But church is in decline. There's a fascination with outer fitness, and again, that's not wrong, but there's a great neglect among people of inner fitness. Now, when I was in my early 20s, I too was fascinated with strength. Some of you guys know I was on a powerlifting team. Do we have a picture, Nick? See, there it is right there. That's me. 22 years old or so. You can't see it, but there's 600 pounds on that bar. Now, but see, now that's what people saw. That was the, that was the me. That's the outer me that other people could see. I weighed about 200 pounds in that picture. Now, see, what happened is that at the same time in my life, I had to go get a spiritual x-ray. And I went to the doctor and I said, I need to get an x-ray of my spiritual life. Can you do that for me? And they said, yeah, and I have that picture too. Nick, can you pull up that picture of my spiritual life? (laughs) Okay, you take him down, Nick. Thank you. See, that's actually what I looked like on the inside. At that time in my life, that's actually what I looked like on the inside. See, there's two people. There's the outward and there is the inward. And sometimes I wonder, and I think this might bear out, that sometimes our emphasis on the outer man or outer woman can be a compensation for what we know or feel is lacking in the inner. What is our inner life? It's our emotions. It's our will. It's our mind. And when Paul asks for strengthening, what you have to understand is that this is a passive thing. Strengthening in the inner man is something that happens to us. We can't do it ourselves. We can't take our inner man to the gym. I mean, we can. We can exercise ourselves, but that's, but I'll, I'll explain to you how this works in a few minutes. But what Paul is speaking of is this passive a strengthening that happens to us. What if our x-rays could show your inner person? What would it look like? What, is your inner person strong? Are you strong emotionally? Are you stable mentally? Is there a focus on what's going on in the inside of your life or way more focus on what's going on in the outside? See, the Bible says the outward man is perishing. Outward man is perishing. Say amen to that, right? Some sort of amen to that. I felt it when I got up out of bed this morning. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed, made new day after day. My outward man might be getting older, but my inward man is vital every day. It can be new and fresh. 
every morning. So who's going to do this work? Well, God is the one. That's who he's praying to. And it's out of his abundance. It's out of the riches of his glory. Does, does God pour in the area of honor and glory? So he's got a huge well to, to give from. We're never going to exhaust what God can give us. So Paul's praying that God would do this. And how is it going to be done? The agency by which it happens is not my ability, but the Spirit of God in me. That's the agency. It's being done through the Spirit. How does God accomplish this? I mean, we know how to accomplish outward strengthening, but how does God accomplish the inward strengthening? Look at verse 17. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, and and I'm going to add this in for clarity, after having been rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now remember, he's not praying this for unbelievers. He's praying this for the church. He's praying this for you and for me and for them in Ephesus, people that were called in chapter 1. Paul says, I'm writing to the saints. He's praying that the saints, the people of God, would not just show up for church and go through the motions and read the Bible, but that they would be rooted and grounded in love. See, that's what comes first. That's pre-exists the, the Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. Until you believe and trust and are confident in the love of God for you, you will never experience Christ dwelling in your heart through faith. If you're going to build a place to live and settle down to be at home, you need a place that's stable, right? Stability. Even kids understand that they need and they like stability. So Paul gives two examples here. He gives the example from agriculture. Plants and trees have to be rooted. I don't know how many of you have ever had to dig up a tree that's uh, without equipment, with just like a shovel and a digging bar. I mean, they've got this thing called a taproot, right, Mike? You know about the taproot. There is a root that you can dig up all the little side, you know, roots that are spreading out along the edges. They're thinner, they're smaller, they're more superficial. But there's this thing called a taproot, and it will drive you crazy because that thing sinks, goes straight down, way into the ground, and it's hard to get to. And until you get that, you can't uproot that tree. I mean, it is stuck, and it's got deep root uh, holding it in place. So there's the stability of a tree that has a, a deep tap root, but then there's the next word, grounded, is literally a foundation or the building of a foundation, and that speaks of a house. When you're going to build a house, it has to be stable, and so you need it to be uh, on a foundation, something that's solid, like the wise man who built on a rock. Now, Paul could have written a number of other things here. He could have said, well, you know, after having been rooted and grounded in guilt, would that have worked so well? After having been rooted and grounded in fear. After having been rooted and grounded in obligation. See, this is what your life says. This is what a lot of people's lives say. We might say we know the love of God. But when we get down to it, what we're really rooted and grounded in, what really drives and, and, and is undergirding our life is, is guilt. Or fear. Or obligation. Or rooted and grounded in routine. Rooted and grounded in tradition. All these things could be said there. None of those is where Paul takes the Ephesians. Where does inner stability come from? Your performance? Your success? Your fear of hell or punishment? 
Paul says, rooted and grounded in agape love. The agape love of God. For those of you that don't know, agape is the Greek word used there for love. There's a number of different words used for love. But I could ask you, and I've, I've learned this recently in the last couple of months, I can ask a person in church, does God love you? What if I ask, does God love you, church? Yeah, we'll all say, yeah, yeah, pastor, we know God loves us. But what if I rephrase the question and say, does God like you? Hmm, yeah. I mean, maybe, I'm not sure. I, I can't, I, I, you reframe the question like that, and all of a sudden you find people going, well, I, I never really thought about it like that. I know God loves me, but maybe he liked me yesterday, but today I've not been a good little girl or boy, and so I'm not sure he really likes me right now. I mean, I don't like me. I'm not sure if God likes me. For many people, God's love is completely obligatory and robotic. He has no feeling about us whatsoever. He's cold and distant and mostly ignores me. And if I sin, he wants nothing to do with me and won't even look at me. See, that's how a lot of people, when you say the love of God, that's what they actually think or believe. A friend of mine uh, recently had a motorcycle accident. And this become a real way for me to understand this love of God. Had a motorcycle accident. Was uh, His son was on the back of the motorcycle, was thrown from the motorcycle. He had a severely broken leg. And after the accident, you know, as the, everything was happening, he was worried about his son. Rightfully so. And so there with his own leg broken, in his own amount of pain, he climbs off of his motorcycle and crawls to find his son to make sure his son is okay. Now, let me ask you a question. That kind of love, do you think he did that out of obligation? Do you think there was uh, just completely robotic? Do you think he just felt like, well, he's my son. I should, people are going to think I'm weird if I don't go see if he's okay. What do you think drove him? What do you think undergirds that behavior? Love? Do you think that's, do you think that's a love devoid of emotion? Do you think he was emotionless when he did that? No, you see, we, we agree that agape love is not driven by selfish emotion. But that doesn't mean agape love is devoid of emotion. It's not based on selfish emotion, but read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. It never seeks its own. It doesn't parade itself. That, that's the definition of agape love. Agape love is a love that's called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object that's love, and it always leads to action, and it's rooted on deeply uh, emotional feelings of passion. That's why we call the week before Christ was crucified, what do we call it, church? Passion week. Why do we call it passion week? We don't call it unemotional week. We call it passion week because Christ is passionate for me and for you, and that kind of passion, it's not the, the uh, passion of an eros love, a deeply selfish, emotional Essential love. It's the passion of a deeply caring, deeply kind, parent-child kind of love that's selflessly sacrificial regarding nothing in return. And so having been, so unless you are rooted and grounded, unless those are the things that undergird your life, that love of God. Well, how do I understand that love of God? Read chapters 1 and 2 and 3 in Ephesians. And you will see. And you will have to believe by faith the narrative, the story that God tells you about you. Those first couple chapters remind us that I was dead and God made me alive. That takes love. Remind me that I was without hope 
and separate from God, but he drew me near. He would do that for me. That now I was without this family of God, but now I'm called to be, I'm chosen to be part, adopted into this family of God. That takes love. You mean God loved me that much? Absolutely. That's how you become rooted and grounded in love. That's how this happens by faith. Watch what he says next. So this paves the way for Christ to dwell in my heart by faith. To dwell means, it's really an interesting word. There's a number of words that mean, that can mean to live in. Uh, one could mean as a stranger, kind of like you'd stay at a hotel. How many of you have ever stayed at a hotel? We've been to a hotel. Do you ever like, uh, move in? You plan to, you bring all your bags, you bring all your kitchen appliances, you know, you, no one moves into a hotel. It's just temporary. But when's, you know, do you remember moving into your new, the house you live in now? Remember when you moved in? You sort of, you, 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 you nest, right? And you, you nest and you make everything. You want to make it feel homey. And you settle down there. And you move in and, and you, you make your residence there. That's what this word is. To dwell means to, it's the word down and home. This is a southern thing, right? Down home. Jesus gets southern culture. To settle down, to be at home, to be comfortable. Have you ever experienced a difference between a house going to someone's house where you can relax and be at home versus a house that's unwelcoming? A house where there's tension, a place where there is, versus a place where there is peace between the people that live there. Maybe as a roommate, a roommate in college. I had a roommate in college where we were not on the same page and it was not much, there was not much peace there. But for Christ to dwell in my heart by faith, it speaks of a relational comfort that allows him to be and to move in and settle down there in my heart. By the way, this is further proof of the forgiveness that's talked about in chapter one. Have you ever tried sharing space with someone who's hurt you? Some of you are going, yeah, huh? that's where I live now. And you know how hard it is, right? It's tension. Yes, we understand the forgiveness of the cross, but for Christ to dwell in my heart every day relies upon, necessitates, that he has to forgive me ongoing. Christ dwelling in my heart by faith is not based on, it doesn't say that Christ might dwell in your heart by performance. That Christ might dwell in your heart by your ongoing continuous goodness. Otherwise, he would be, he'd be packing his bags every other day. I mean, where are you going? Jesus got to move out again. Oh, I'm sorry, I repent. Okay, move back in. And he's moving out again, moving in. Does that create stability? See, our, a life that's built around my performance, my stability, my goodness, my accomplishment never, ever, ever leads to stability because I am inherently inconsistent and unstable. But a life that is built around the agape love of Christ will always lead to stability because his love is unchanging. So for him to live in my heart, to dwell and be comfortable in my heart, there has to be an ongoing relationship that involves confession, forgiveness, what I love about my wife, a lot of things I love about my wife, but I love her willingness to be transparent. When we have people to our house, you know, we, we laugh and we joke about the dust bunnies under the couch. I mean, you know, and part of that is because my wife just loves to make people feel at home. She's got the gift of hospitality. And when you come to our house, you might see the dust bunnies, but I hope and I think that once you've experienced my wife's hospitality, you forget about the dust bunnies. 
You're not looking at that stuff anymore because you feel, and our desire is to make you feel at home. The house might not be immaculate, but you know you're loved. And do you know how she can do that? Because she knows that she's loved. And I'm not talking about love by me. Yeah, I hope she knows she's loved by, by me. I do my best. But she knows she's loved by God. And then all of a sudden, she's not so worried about the other things. There's a stability there that whether the house is immaculate or not doesn't affect her sense of being loved by God. That's an inner thing. And this all happens by faith. Trusting the story that God tells me about me and about himself and about his love for me. And so again, as he, as he presses on into this prayer, what else does he want? He wants them to know that Christ is going to dwell in their hearts, that Christ can and will dwell in their hearts by faith, having been rooted and grounded in love. So that, verse 18, they may be able or have the full strength to comprehend with all the saints, that's you, that's me, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. This is Paul's prayer. So much else in our lives straightens out when we know this. The word to comprehend, very interesting word. If you speak about it physically, it means to lay hold of, to take. So this is the word when the Pharisees caught the woman in adultery. They laid hold of her. They dragged her to Jesus. That's the word here. But that's speaking of it physically. When you're speaking of it mentally, it means to lay hold of, to perceive. That is when the light goes on and you get it. That's when you just, you go, oh, I get it now. Like I've read it. I've heard it. For me, it was Pantops Mountain. It was a number of years ago. It was studying 1 John 4. It was reading that God is love. And boom, the light went on. The Spirit of God illuminated that in my life and I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. God is love. He has no other approach toward me. He has no other stance toward me except love. Everything he does in my life stems from his love. And I got it. And that's what God wants you to get to. When you get that, when you comprehend that, not just that, but the width, the length, the depth. So it's like, it's like this house, Jesus is going to dwell in your heart. And there's this house of love built in your heart. And these are the dimensions the dimensions of God's love. And Paul wants you to know the dimensions of God's love in your life. He doesn't say, oh, I pray that they would comprehend the rules of God. Oh, I pray that they would comprehend the obligations of the church, the rituals of the church. Again, all none of that stuff bad. But first and foremost, you can understand the rituals, the obligations, the culture, all that. But without comprehending the great love of God for you, you will never Christ will never quite settle down in your heart. You'll never quite be at peace. You'll never quite have that rest because you'll, you're still, it, the underlying narrative of your heart will be that still somehow it's up to me. The agape, that's what he wants us to know. Comprehend the agape love of Christ. These dimensions. And, and this is so interesting. He says that you might know, to perceive, to be acquainted with, to feel. I like uh, the the New Living Translation says that you may experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand. Isn't that funny that Paul says, I want you to understand something that's not understandable. Well, thanks a lot. What Paul's saying to the Ephesians and what he's saying to us 
is that the love of God, it, it's more than information. It's more than just, I read a book about God's love. It's not just about information. It's about a sense, an experience of being loved that fosters security and stability. My mental comprehension stops at a certain place. But this is a knowledge. Here's my, where my knowledge, my understanding stops. But Paul says, I want you to know what is beyond, what is thrown past. It's even past that. An ounce of experience of God's love is greater than volumes of more information about his love. And you're meant to experience. What we talk about is not just academic or theological. But remember, it's based on faith and being rooted and grounded in love. Then Christ comes to dwell in your heart and, and then with him there, all of a sudden that inner man is being strengthened. Strengthened how? Strengthened because now we're comprehending this great love of God. When you know your love, when you know that you know that you know that you're loved to the moon, you become more stable. Just, you're just not that uh, vulnerable anymore. No one can tweak you and manipulate you because you know you're loved. And that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is what's possible for us. When you speak of a net, it means to cram a net full. When you speak of a hole or a ditch, it means to level it, to fill it with all the fullness, is to, to level it. By the way, same word, filled, same word in chapter 5 when Paul says that you might keep being filled with the Spirit. I think these two, synonymous. Being filled with the Spirit, synonymous to comprehending being filled with the fullness of God knowing, comprehending his love for you. Show me a person who is filled with the love of God and I'll show you a person who's filled with the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit is love. The next three chapters, and I'll bring it to a close here and then we'll just read the doxology. The next three chapters, listen carefully, describe how this kind of person lives. The change on the inside is what leads to a relational change on the outside. How does it look in the church? Ephesians 4 tells us that. When you have a group of people gathering together who are filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, what happens when you're filled and someone tries to put more in? What happens? It overflows. That's what church is supposed to be. An overflowing from full people who God keeps pouring love into their lives and just keeps flowing out on other people. Because we're full. How's it look in the church? We, we love each other. We're kind to each other. We put up with each other. We forgive each other. How does it look when a wife is filled with all the fullness of God? She honors her husband. How does it look when a husband is filled with all the fullness of God? He lays his life down for his wife. She submits to him out of her fullness. He loves her out of his fullness. How does it look when kids are filled with the fullness of God? Well, we're not sure we've ever seen that, Pastor. <laughs> We'd love... No. <laughs> we can imagine what that might look like. What does it look like when bosses and workers are filled with all the fullness of God? What does it look like when people are filled with all the fullness of God and they put on the armor of God and they do battle? That's Ephesians chapter 6. See, you can't give what you don't have. So my encouragement as we read, let's just look how Paul ends it here. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask for things. I don't know if God can do it for me. Hey, wait a second, Paul says, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. 
according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Spontaneous worship. After he's thinking about this great love of God, he just, boom, spontaneous worship. I love it. So my prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for this church, you want to see revival? That revival comes from praying that prayer. God, I want to be strengthened 